The sermon which you are about to hear is by Pastor Chris Mitchell with Pleasant Grove Baptist Church, located in Wrightsville, Georgia. If you would like to contact us, please visit us on our Facebook page at Pleasant Grove 319. That's on Facebook at Pleasant Grove 319. Our desire is to connect you with the one true living God by encountering God every day, verse by verse. And now, here's Pleasant Grove's pastor, Chris Mitchell. I titled this message this morning, The Unveiling of the Future. The Unveiling of the Future. In 2012, there was a survey conducted over 20 countries asking the same question. When do you think the end of the world is going to be? 14% out of all of the 20 countries that were surveyed said the same thing. And that was, in my lifetime. Many people believe the end of the world is going to come in their lifetime. And there's many speculations and interpretations of how that's going to transpire. Answers varied from, you know, a nuclear blast that's going to blast the whole world and we need to build these shelter bombs. World War III is going to break out. Some people believe that intelligent, artificial intelligence is going to take over the world like robots, you know, like the Terminator taking over Judgment Day, things of that nature. And even some wacky answers such as zombies are going to take over and aliens from outer space are going to come to this earth and take over the world. Now, the Bible mentions none of those things. Um, the Bible has the answer specifically what is going to happen to the earth and is recorded in detail in the revelation of Jesus Christ what is going to happen in the future. And we can see that this is popularized. Uh, we can see that this is very popular and many people are into this. Or we wouldn't see fortune tellers or fortune cookies or we wouldn't see horoscopes and things of that nature. But also in 2012, you remember the big uh, you know, craze, the, the Mayan calendar ends on December 21st and the world's going to come to an end. And that didn't happen. It was based off of a movie as well, 2012. Now, the same gentleman that directed the movie ID4 and other movies you know, the day after tomorrow about all these apocalyptic you know, uh, movies that the world's going to come to an end either through a meteor or some natural disaster that's going to come upon the earth. We see men like Notre Dame, you know, makes many predictions. He's a French philosopher, uh, but his predictions weren't accurate. But many people believe in those things. Many people believe in like men like David Koresh in 1993 in Waco, Texas. He got his whole compound. If you remember watching the nightly news for 51 days, there was a siege for 51 days, and he believed that him and his following were the seven uh, seals of the scroll in, in Revelation chapter 6. We see people like Ellen G. White or Edgar Winsonant making uh, you know, perceptions or predict dates. And we see Harold Camping and all those gentlemen and ladies and people who make the same mistake over and over and over again. The end of the world is going to be like this. But the Bible is the only one thing that has the answer. Matter of fact, Isaiah fifty or excuse me, Isaiah forty six ten says God declared the end at the beginning. God is the only one that knows how it's all going to shape out and how it's going to be. Matter of fact, that's not the first time and not the last that question has been asked. When is the world going to come to an end? Matter of fact, in Matthew 24, Jesus and his disciples coming out of the temple mount, coming out of the temple, and the disciples were awing at the, the temple, and Jesus intrigued their interest by making a statement. Not one stone shall be left on this building. So in verse 3, the disciples say, well, Lord, when is this going to happen? 
When is the sign of your coming? And when is the end of the age? Even the disciples wanted to know how it was all going to end. And Jesus, sandwiched in between Matthew 24 and 25, also known as the Olivet Discourse, in verse 36, Jesus says, But of that day and hour knoweth no man nor the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Again, the disciples on another occasion, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they say, Lord, are you now going to restore the kingdom of Israel? In other words, is this the time now that you're going to bring back the kingdom and come back to the earth and rule all nations? And Jesus responds in verse 7. He says, But of the seasons and of the times, it's not for you to know the seasons or the times in which the Father has set in His own authority. Let me tell you what Jesus was telling His disciples. He was saying it compassionately and with compassion like we say in the South, it's none of your business. That's what Jesus was saying to His disciples. Only God knows when it's going to end. And He has recorded that for us in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the question is not when is the world going to end because the book of Revelation never answers that. The book of Revelation never gives us a a date a time or a season in which all this is going to take place. So a better question to ask is not when is the world going to end, but how? How is the world going to come to an end? How is Christ going to come back? How is Christ going to set up His kingdom? How is the sheep and the goats going to be separated? How are believers going to be into eternal life? How are non-believers going to be not into eternal life, but eternal life separation in damnation in hell and the lake of fire? How is all this going to happen? And the book of Revelation answers that. The book of Revelation exactly gives us how all these things are going to transpire. And matter of fact, in the opening benediction, John gives us five aspects of how this is going to happen. Five things that we need to consider in the first three verses this morning I want to share with you, and we're going to ask the question and answer the question in our verses this morning through these five aspects or five points that John brings out. The question we're going to ask this morning is this. How should you, as a Christian, view the future? How should you, as a Christian, view the future? Point number one. The future is revealed. The future is revealed. The future is not hidden from us. It's not something that's some far distant billions of years away from now. The future is revealed to us. Look at verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation, apocalypsis, where we get the word apocalypse from, literally means an uncovering or a revealing Think of it this way, it means to be naked. Okay? And I'm not saying physically, but what I'm saying, it means to be exposed. In other words, the definition of this word, it means something or someone that was once hidden, but now is being made visible or being made known. And what are the things that are known? Well, there's two things, the truths and the truth. The first thing that is revealed to us in this book is the truths that are contained in this book. Matter of fact, in the 22nd chapter, in the 10th verse, an angel tells the Apostle John who wrote the book of Revelation, do not conceal the words that are written in this prophecy. In other words, do not hide the words in which you are writing down through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit penned in the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
So the first thing we need to understand is in the revelation of Jesus Christ, God wants us and desires for us to know the truths that are found in this book. And what are these truths? They're futuristic. Specifically in verse 19, it gives us the outline of this book when God, through Jesus Christ, commissions uh, the Apostle John and tells him, write the things which you have seen, past tense, the things which are, present tense, and the things which will take place after this. In other words, future tense. So chapter 1 is past, chapters 2 and 3 is present, and chapters 4 through 22, an outline of this book, is futuristic, meaning nothing has happened yet in chapters 4 all the way to chapter 22. And so what are the things that we are supposed to know? The revelation, those truths? Chapters 4 and 5 give us the revelation or the truths of heaven and what heaven is really like. That heaven is for real. And that God is in heaven. And He is on the throne. And He is in control. And that He controls all things and He's worthy to be worshipped. Chapter 5, Jesus Christ takes back the title deed of the earth and He was going to rule the earth as the true King of kings and Lord of lords. And therefore, as the lame who is slain, we are worthy to worship Him for what He has done, but that He's also coming back to the earth. Chapter 6-18, through 18, the Great Tribulation tells us specifically how God's going to judge the earth through the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments as He's judging the earth and the wickedness upon the earth. Chapter 19, the truth that is revealed to us is when Christ returns in the battle of Armageddon and He destroys all the kingdoms of the earth, He is going to be the King of kings and Lord of lords and He's going to set up His kingdom. Revelation chapter 20 tells us the truth of how He sets up that kingdom with His saints and He bounds Satan for a thousand years. And after that thousand years, a great war comes about. And after the war, He throws Satan into the lake of fire. Then we see in verses 11-15 through 15 how Christ will judge all sinners with their resurrected bodies and the names that are not written in the Lamb's book of life, He'll cast them in the lake of fire. We also see in chapters 21 and 22 the revelation of the new heavens and the new earth and how everything is going to be in the eternal state and for all of eternity, either you're going to be in heaven or you're either going to be in hell, but you're going to be in one of those two places and the Bible mentions that. So we see the first revelation of Jesus Christ is we see the revelation, the revealing. In other words, we see how it's all going to pan out. We're going to see how it all going to work out and how Christ is going to rule the earth and how He's going to judge the earth and we're going to see all these futuristic events. So that's the first thing we see about how the future is revealed. But secondly, the future is revealed not only of the truths contained in this book, but also reveals of the truth, meaning Jesus Christ. Because notice what the text says. The revelation of whom? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ in no other book is revealed in so much glory and majesty like this book. This book reveals the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ like no other book in the Bible. We see Jesus Christ as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We see Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. We see Jesus Christ as the light of the world. We see Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain before the foundations of the earth. We see Jesus Christ, the root of David or the root of Jesse. We see Him as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. We see Him as the Word of God in Revelation chapter 19. We see Him in it with a fiery red eyes as flames of fire. We see Him on a white horse. We see His vesture, His clothing dipped in blood. We see Him with a sword in His hand. We see Him come and throw the sickle upon the earth and judging the earth. We see Christ Christ in His glory as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. We see Jesus Christ in all of His glory and His majesty coming back to the earth. And that's what the book of Revelation is truly about. 
It's not about the events that are recorded. Yes, it's recorded for us to know, but specifically it's recorded on how Christ is coming back. That's the point of this book. And if you miss that point of studying the revelation of Jesus Christ, you miss the entirety and the totality of the revelation of Jesus Christ. You miss out on who Jesus is. You see, we know Jesus in His humility, in His servanthood. We know Jesus as the friend of sinners. But Jesus is coming back. And He will not be a friend of sinners. But He is going to judge the earth. And He's going to rule with righteousness. That's what this book is about. And so the first thing that we can grasp from the opening benediction of our first point is the future is revealed. It's given to us. And it's there in black and white. No pun intended, but that's the point here. It's there. It's revealed to us in this book. Secondly, the future is, here it is, a tribute. The future is a tribute. Look at verse 1 as it continues the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him. Which God gave Him. Now, I had to ask a couple of questions here. The first question I had to ask was, who is receiving the gift? And secondly, what is this gift? Notice the text. It says, which God gave him. The him, the pronoun is capitalized and is connected to the antecedent, which is Jesus Christ. If you study English, the antecedent always comes before the pronoun. And how you know the pronoun and the antecedent is connected is that it, it, it agrees together in the number and also in gender. In Greek, you have female or feminine, masculine, and neuter. Depending on the end case, like the ing, what we see in our English, depending on the end of the suffix there or prefix, what we see in Greek is we see that these words are connected. And so therefore, the word Jesus Christ and Him are connected because of the end case, but also they are singular and they're masculine. So the Him is not in reference to God, but the Him is in reference to Jesus Christ. Now that's interesting. We know who receives the gift now. God is giving Jesus Christ a gift. And that's not unusual, because if you read John chapter 6 and also John chapter 17, the Bible tells us that God gives Jesus Christ a gift. It says, all that the Father has given me, I will no wise lose or cast out or be lost. What, what Jesus is saying is believers, the bride, which is the church, is given to Christ as a gift. And so it's not unusual for God to give a gift, but that's not the gift here. So what is this gift? What is God given to Jesus Christ? What is this gift? And also now when we identify what is the gift, then what does Jesus need? I mean, really think about it. Jesus is God. Does He need anything? Well, let's answer the second question. We know who's receiving the gift. It's Jesus Christ. But what is this gift? Look at verse 1 again. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Which. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, which. In other words, this is what God is giving to Jesus Christ. And it is the revelation. So what is that? What is God giving to Jesus Christ concerning the revelation? Now, some have interpreted it this way, and it's a good observation, but I think it's an incorrect one, and that is this. Mark chapter 13, and verse either 31 or 32, I believe it's 32. Um, it also quotes Matthew 24, but verse 32 of chapter 13 of Mark specifically says this, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, nor the angels of heaven, 
nor the Son, but my Father only. So with that interpretation, some have believed and interpreted that, well, Christ didn't know when the end of the world was going to be, and therefore, you know, when Christ at this time receives this revelation, God is giving him the revelation of the end of the world. Well, that can't be correct. And I'll tell you two reasons why. Number one, the book of Revelation never tells us specifically when this will happen. It never does. It never says on this date or during this time, and it never tells us who the Antichrist is or, or the number or the significance of 666 or any of those things about the book of Revelation, so it can't be about that. And number two, it can't be because Jesus Christ at His resurrection became fully God. In other words, it is true that Christ limited Himself in His first coming, meaning He couldn't be omnipresent, which means everywhere at the same time, could He? Because He was in His body, wasn't He? He couldn't be in heaven and here on earth at the same time because He was in a body. He was in His incarnation. So yes, that's true in a sense. And yes, it is true when Jesus said in Mark 13, 32, that nor the Son knows the day or the hour. What He was saying was, in His limited, finite mind and body at that time, He did not know. But in His glorified body, in the resurrection, Jesus Christ knew the end because He Himself is God. And there are some Scriptures that I believe what Paul or John is trying to get at, but I believe Paul is going to affirm here. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. And I want you to see this. What gift is God giving Christ, specifically concerning the revelation of Jesus Christ? The revelation of Jesus Christ. So God is giving a gift to Jesus, and we conferred that it's the revelation. So what is this revelation? What is this about? In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says this, Let this mind be in you which also was in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Let's stop right there. That's the first coming. Can't you see that? It's clear. Christ, He became a man. He humbled Himself. What this, let the same mind be in you. What Paul was saying is have the mind of, an, of a servant. Have the attitude of humbling yourself and submitting to one another as we talked about in Sunday school lesson this morning through the power of the Holy Spirit. But what Paul is saying here is that Jesus Christ willingly submitted to God the Father. How did He do that? Verse 8 tells us He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Does anybody remember in Mark chapter 14 when Jesus said, Father, let this cup pass from Me? But then He said, Not My will be done, but Your will be done. What this is in essence is trying to say is this. In Christ's first coming, he humbled Himself to the will of the Father, and He was so obedient to the will of the Father, He even died on the cross. That's, that's what that's saying. So because of Christ's faithfulness, because of Christ's humility, because of Christ's sacrifice, and was willing to do the will of the Father, look at verse 9. 
therefore. Now we got to stop right there. What's the therefore, therefore? To tie us back into verses 5 through 8. So in other words, because Christ was obedient, because Christ was faithful to the Lord or to the Father, notice what the text says. Therefore God also, because He was obedient to God and God's will, God's going to do something for Jesus. What is that? Has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is the gift given to Jesus Christ back in Revelation chapter 1? It is this. Because God the Father saw that Jesus Christ was obedient and that He was faithful, God is saying to Jesus, because you did what you did, now I'm going to promise you and give you what I promised to give you, and that is this. I'm going to glorify you. I'm going to lift you up above everything else. The word revelation means the unveiling. And so what is this gift that God has given to Jesus Christ? God has given to Jesus Christ this, your glory that I promised you. In Christ's first coming, He didn't get glory. He wasn't a king. He didn't have a kingdom. No one fell down and worshipped Him. The whole world didn't know who He was. But in His second coming, look at verse 7 of chapter 1 of Revelation. It says this, Behold, He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him, even so, Amen. Guess what? The world is going to know who Jesus Christ is in His second coming. And He will not be robbed of His glory. He will not be robbed of His majesty. He will not be robbed of His titles of King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It doesn't matter what empire, what president, what king or emperor or whatever it may be, who's in power at the time, they're going to bow the knee, Philippians chapter 2, every knee, that means Satan himself, Saddam Hussein, Hitler, and all bad, wicked men, and even Christians are going to bow the knee at Jesus Christ and recognize in His glory who He is. That's the gift. God has promised to Jesus Christ, I'm going to give you glory. It's so much deeper than knowing the future. It's about His glory. It's about Christ taking back the earth and what is rightfully His. For so long, for over 6,000 years, Satan has ruled the roost. He has usurped the authority of God and Jesus Christ. Let me let you in on a little secret. Christ is coming back. And He's taking His throne and His world and everything in it back. And He'll rule. And He'll be King of kings and Lord of lords. That is the gift. That is the tribute. Think of what a tribute is. Tribute means honor. God wants to honor Christ for Christ's obedience. Because Christ was obedient to the Father, the Father wants to honor the Son. That's what this is all about. The revelation of Jesus Christ is about honoring the Son and who He is and when He'll come back. That's the point. But it's not only a gift to Jesus Christ, but it's also a gift to Christians. Notice what the text says. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show whom? His servants. His servants. Now, there are six words in the Greek language that describe servant. 
One of those words means slave, doulos. And that is this word right here. This word does not mean servant as in a sense of someone being hired and they can go at any time they please. This word means slave. Now the question is, why did the King James or New King James or other translations translate it servants instead of slave? Well, because of the negative connotation behind it. They were afraid that it would bring a wrong idea about the Bible. But this word slave means slave. Now, what does that mean? Well, think of it this way. A servant is hired, a slave is owned. A servant has a boss, a slave has a master. A servant can come and go as he pleases. A slave is owned by his master. Now, why is that important? Because if you understand and study this word, you begin to understand 150 times in the New Testament this word is used and it's used a lot. And it describes a beautiful language between Christians and to Christ. Now we have to divorce ourselves from the Western civilization thinking of what the word slave is. Because when you mention that word here in the South, people think it's someone treating like someone else like a piece of property. That's not what this word means. If you go to Exodus, here's a great um, cross-reference for you. Exodus 21 and verses 1 through 6 tells us exactly how this word is being used. In Exodus 20, if you remember, the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments is given by angels to Moses on the Mount Sinai. And Moses is continuing about the law that is going to be for the children of Israel. And in that is a law concerning slaves and their masters. Chapter 21. And in verse 1, it says that slaves will only work for six years, but on the seventh year, the master has to let go of the slave. In other words, he doesn't own him. In other words, he can't keep him forever, but on the seventh year, he has to be let go. And verses 5-6, through six, which is very interesting, is if the slave loved his master, the master would take that slave, put him underneath a doorpost, put his ear up to the doorpost, punch it with a hole, and then put an awl like an earring inside of that ear, which would indicate that the slave loved his master and wanted to serve his master forever. And by seeing that symbol or that earring, that all, people would know that slave loves his master because his master treats him good. That's how this word is being used. Meaning, Christians are those who submit to the authority and power and the will of Christ, not out of fear, but out of love. Because we love our master. And isn't that the language of the New Testament? Luke 6, 46 why do you call me Lord, Lord, but not do as I say? Or what did Jesus say to His disciples in John fourteen fifteen? If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. That's not an option. That's not a suggestion. That is saying, I am Lord. I am the Master. And you are the slaves. That's the point. And so what is this point? How is God giving us a gift? It is this. Only Christians will be able to understand the book of Revelation. That's what this is saying. Non-believers are not going to understand. Now, yes, they can understand intellectually. They can understand maybe certain things that I'm saying or as I'm teaching, and they can maybe grasp some of the sentencing or the literature or the language of the Bible. They can understand it. I mean, anybody can understand John 11.35. Jesus wept. Anybody can understand that. 
But to know the spiritual depth and meaning behind these words in the revelation of Jesus Christ, non-believers will not understand it. They will not grasp it. Because it's not for them. It says to show. In other words, God gave the glory of Jesus Christ to reveal to Him in the revelation of Jesus Christ to show it to His slaves. To show it to Christians. To those who are willing to submit. Do you know what the difference is between a slave and a servant? And it is this. A slave is willing to submit to the authority of his master while a servant is willing to rebel. So here's the point. God wants to reveal this book to Christians because it's mainly written to Christians. Look at verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. The word church here is ecclesia. It means called out ones. And it's not referring to a building, but it's referring to people. And so what this is saying is the book of Revelation was written to seven churches. Those seven churches are listed in verse 11 and chapters 2 and 3. And in those churches are Christians. And this is the point. God wants us to know what is written in this book. And the only way we're going to understand it is if we willingly submit to our Master. That's the point. You can't understand it unless you submit to your Master, which is Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the future is predetermined. You see, we see the future is revealed. The future is a tribute. And thirdly, the future is predetermined. I love that. Look what this says. Things. What things? Well, the things of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Anything that's contained in this book. So that's what the word things here is about. Which must shortly take place. Which must shortly take place. The word shortly is what I want to focus on. Takos. Where we get the word tachometer from. A tachometer measures the rotations per minute, which we call RPMs in our cars or vehicles. It measures how fast something is going, how quickly something is going. So, in one sense, this word can describe how fast Christ will return, how fast He will be here immediately, Quickly are some words that describe this word. It can mean that, but not in this context. So what does this word shortly mean? It means next. In other words, on God's prophetic calendar, the next thing to take place is Christ to return. Christ is returning, and it's very soon. The sand and the hourglass is running out. And Christ will return or return, excuse me, he will return to the earth and he'll take back the earth. It is imminent. I love how this word is being used. Look at verse 3, and at the very end, notice what the text says. For the time is near. For the time is near. The word time is kairos, not chronos. Chronos means chronological time, like clock or calendar time, but kairos means season. In other words, the season in which Christ is going to return, guess what, is next. In other words, there's not another event or another prophecy or sign that must be fulfilled for Christ to return. In other words, the next messianic timetable or messianic event that's going to take place is this. He's going to return. 
And He's going to return to the earth and claim the earth back. And so that's what it means to be imminent. It means imminent meaning quickly that it's the next event that's going to take place. So for which must shortly take place, it's not only imminent, but it's also permanent because it says it must take place. In other words, this is going to happen whether you want it to happen or not. Whether anybody wants it to happen or not. Whether Satan wants it to happen or not. Guess what? God has predetermined when this is going to happen. And when God predetermines something, guess what, folks? It's going to happen. Again, Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end at the beginning. Again, in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, in which the Father has set and put into motion, as Jesus said to His disciples. Again, Acts chapter 17, if you remember the Apostle Paul on Mars Hill, talking to, to the philosophers of that day, and He told them in verse 26, of one blood God created all of mankind, but it says He determined and fixed their boundaries where they should live. In other words, God's got this all planned out. He knows exactly when Christ is going to return. He knows exactly when this is going to happen. And there's nothing you or I can do about it to stop it. The future is predetermined. And it's going to happen. And it's going to come quickly. Meaning it's next. It's near. And it's the next event that will take place. Fourthly, the future is supernatural. We see that the future is revealed. The future is a tribute. The future is predetermined. But also, the future is supernatural. Look at this. Notice what the text says. And He sent, meaning God, and signified it, meaning He sent and completed or communicated the revelation of Jesus Christ. How? By His angel to His servant John. How did God communicate this letter in the New Testament, known as the revelation of Jesus Christ to John. And it's interesting how he did this. By an angel. Do you realize no other book makes this claim? No other book in the Bible claims that it was given by an angel, given to the human author to write down the words that are written in it. That's why it's supernatural. It's not only supernatural in that case, but also the word angel here, angelos, means messenger. So he's bringing a message. And what is very interesting is there's only two chapters in the book of Revelation that the word angel is not mentioned. And that is chapters 4 and 13. 71 times that word angel is mentioned. That means out of 404 verses out of the entirety of the revelation of Jesus Christ, 71 times out of those 404 times the word angel is being used. And not only that, that means one out of every four words, you will see the word angel. That's a lot of times that word angel is being used. We see angels all throughout the place. And you know, it's not angels what people think. It's not Cupid and this cute little baby and you know, the little wings and the halo and little, little bow and arrow and shoot it and oh, they fall in love and oh, cute angels, you know, and they make these little you know, little angels and little figurines. No. <laughs> These angels are serious. These angels are doing the bidding of Christ. 
We see angels blowing trumpets, bringing judgments. We see angels binding Satan. We see angels throughout the book of Revelation doing numerous things. We see angels in, in Revelation chapter 14, an angel preaching the gospel in heaven so that the world can hear to repent, but most of the world doesn't. We see an angel bringing judgment upon the city of Babylon. We see an angel bringing destruction and saying all the inhabitants of Babylon are going to drink the wine of the wrath of God because they drunk the, the wine and the influence of the woman known as Babylon, the influence of the false religion during that time. We see angels giving books. We see angels giving judgments. We see angels bringing out bold judgments and judgments upon the earth. We see even angels doing all kinds of things. Even angels are going to go to battle of Armageddon with Christ in Revelation chapter 19. And don't you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and 25? He says, when I come back to the earth in the clouds, my angels are coming with me. Angels are going to judge the earth and they're going to fight with Christ. These aren't these little cute little angels that we see, you know, this isn't touched by an angel. Whatever misconception you have and think how the media paints what an angel is, you better throw that out the window. Because we're going to look in the book of Revelation and we're going to see what angels really look at like and what they're going to do. So this book is supernatural in that way, but it's also supernatural because of the human agent, which is the author, which is the Apostle John. Notice what it says about John. He's a servant, same Greek word doulos, connected back to, to verse 1 there. And what did John do? He bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. So, what is supernatural about this book is not only the angels and the things that they're doing about God, but also the human agent, John. John here, think about it. John is writing about the future when he's in the future even though the future hasn't happened yet. If that's not supernatural, folks, I don't know what is. In other words, if, if you were to put it on a headline, uh, you know, on a newspaper, front page news, it would be entitled, this is about the future from someone who came from the future, even though the future hasn't happened yet. That would be big news. And that's supernatural. John couldn't know that. So how, how does John see this? He says, "...who bore witness of the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ." That's the first coming. And if you remember in John 1.1, it says, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us." Verse 14. John not only wrote the revelation of Jesus Christ, but he also wrote the Gospel of John and the three letters to the churches in First and Second and Third John. And in those letters, he talked about how he witnessed, how he had seen and touched and heard of the Messiah. He was one of the disciples with Jesus Christ. So he has seen. This gives him weight. This gives him authority in writing this letter. When the church would read this, they would say, this is the Apostle John. This is John who saw Jesus Christ and was there and saw the miracles. This is the same John that was there when Christ was crucified. And if anybody knows that he is dead, it's the, it's the Apostle John. And isn't Jesus, he said, look, John, this is your mother. And mother, this is your son. And John was to take care of mother, his mother, Mary. So we know John was there. This is the same John who saw Jesus die. This is the same John who saw Jesus Christ be raised from the dead three days later. This is the same John that went with Peter to, to the tomb to see if Jesus had really risen. This is that same John. And he bore witness of this. But not only this, but notice what it says. It says in the text, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. 
In other words, everything that's recorded in the revelation of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Jesus Christ, I'm recording it down. I have seen it. To be a witness is to see something and to testify of it. And that's what John is doing. So the future is supernatural. Meaning we're going to see angels, we're going to see judgments, all those kinds of things. And we're also going to see that this is of the future, even though it hasn't happened yet. And means we can believe it. Because let me tell you something. If we can believe the rest of the Bible and believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead, you can believe this book too. Lastly, the future is a blessing. The future is a blessing. Look at verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Blessed, makarios, literally means to be happy. That's what it literally means. Not joy. We can be joyful as Christians, but it literally means to be happy, to be full. And the Bible makes a promise. This is the only book that makes a promise at the beginning and at the end, and that is this. If you read it and you hear it and you keep it, God's going to bless you. That's why we should read the book of Revelation. God promises to bless us. So what are the three verbs we're looking at here? Reads, hear, and keep. Each of them are present participles, and we talked about that this morning, about being filled with the Spirit. Present participle literally means that it is a continuing act. In other words, you can't just read the revelation of Jesus Christ just once, but it says you continually to read it, and when you continually to do that, you'll be continually to be blessed. So to read means to publicly pronounce. In other words, kind of like what I'm doing. I'm reading this out publicly. And God promises when that does, when that happens, He's going to bless His Word. Remember, Isaiah 55, His Word will not return unto void. In Revelation 22, do not take away from this or add to it or He'll take you away from the Lamb's book of life or He'll add plagues upon your life. The Bible makes this clear. God's Word is blessed. You will be blessed by the reading of it. But not only that, by hearing it, Akuo in the Greek where we get the word acoustic from, and it literally means to hear, to comprehend, to fully understand. Let me give you a for instance. How many of you have either heard an adult say this or you've said this to children? Do you hear me, young man? Do you hear me, young lady? You're not talking about physically. Yes. Physically, children can hear you, okay? Unless they're hearing impaired. But the point is this. When you say that to a child, you're not saying that as if, oh, they can physically hear your voice. You're saying that, do you understand what I am telling you? In other words, do not do that. Or I want you to do this. Do not go out into the road. Look both ways. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? This is what the Bible is saying. When you read it, the Bible is saying, do you hear me, young lady? Do you hear me, young man? Do you understand what you are reading? means to fully comprehend, to grasp it. Not just to physically hear it, but to understand the words. And listen to me. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the natural, man can't under, or the natural man can't discern or understand the spiritual things. In other words, it ties back into verse 1. Only Christians will have the discernment through the power of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to understand what is written in this book. So not only to read and to hear, but to also... Obey. Keep. Tereo. Literally means tereo, which means to guard. 
to keep, to guard, to keep, to preserve those things which are written in it. Simply put, to obey. To obey means to keep it, to guard it, to apply it. So what does that mean? James 1.22 We can't be just hearers of the Word, but we must be doers of the Word. So, in the opening benediction here, John doesn't answer the question when this is going to happen, but he answers the question about the future, how? How's the future going to come about? First, it's revealed to us. The future is revealed. Secondly, it's a tribute. It's to honor Christ and to reveal to Christians only. It is predetermined, meaning God's already set it into motion. It's already set into place, and one day it's going to come to fruition. It is supernatural, meaning that we're going to see some supernatural events in this book that can't be explained except it's only supernatural. And that by human agent of John, we know that he was there in the future even though it hasn't happened yet. And lastly, it's a blessing. If we're going to traverse through this book verse by verse, I promise you one thing. I can't promise you a lot, but I can promise you one thing. The Bible makes it. You'll be blessed. You'll be blessed. So next week, we're going to look at verses 4 through 8. And we're going to see in this closing part of the benediction how the Trinity is going to give us a blessing as well. Not just John and this book. And that's what we're going to see, the unveiling of the future. Remember, the book of Revelation never tells us when this is going to happen. But it does describe how it's going to happen. Amen? Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon by Pastor Chris Mitchell with Pleasant Grove Baptist Church. For more information, please visit us on our Facebook page at Pleasant Grove 319.